Hello and welcome back to Exocast 42D, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. So you're listening to one of three mini Exocasts which we plan to release this month. So if you haven't already heard them, keep an ear out for our chat with Dr. Stephen Kane from the University of California, Riverside, and also for our discussion about water in the universe. But coming up on this mini episode, Hugh is going to be telling us a little bit about newsworthy publications for for this last month, and uh, we'll have a chat about them as we go. So Hugh, uh, what's new? Well, yeah, a lot of things have been happening because we haven't recorded for six weeks. So there's been a good six or seven weeks worth of news. But uh, what well, do we want the, the good news or the bad news first? Uh, uh, bad news, personally, you know, lead with some <laughs> bad news and then have some good news afterwards to make you feel better. Yeah, as long as there's good it. news following it, you didn't say yes. what the other news was. <laughs> yes, there is good. There is, uh, there, well, there's good news, there's bad news. And then there's just, you know, news. just news. neutral <laughs> news. So um, bad. Okay. So, well, so we should start then with Spitzer, which, um, as we may have talked about before, um, is at the end of its life. So just yesterday, or on January 30, 30th, 2020, uh, NASA sent a signal to send Spitzer into safe mode for the last time. So um, to turn off scientific operations, to shut down the spacecraft, and to let it drift around the sun and never to be heard from again, which is extremely sad. That is very sad. Um, that is sad. Especially given how much Spitzer did for us, especially in the exoplanet realm. Uh, it was a transit and phase curve machine for the last few years, um, observing lots of different different planets, different systems, lots of lots of interesting news happening. Um, so, do you what? Do you guys have any any favourite Spitzer observations from its twelve uh, year life? I think no, even longer, like fifteen years. It's been going. I think uh, I kind of have to be a little biased on this one and go with some of those early characterization observations that were done. One of the first times that we got a map of the day side of a yeah. giant planet. It was truly like changed the way that we look at these planets and what we understand about their circulation. And I don't think we would be able to do that without the infrared capabilities of Spitzer and also its ability to just sit and stare at things. And we've seen how important that is when it comes to things like the TRAPPIST system. You know, the observations that they did of that system completely changed what we understood from the ground-based measurements yeah. that were done. So we're not going to see another telescope like Spitzer for exoplanets that can just sit and stare at something for a thousand hours. Uh, we're not going to have that. Uh, and it's a real shame to lose it. Andrew, do you have any highlights from Spitzer's uh, tenure? I guess I'm a little bit less familiar with Spitzer than maybe you two are, but I know it was um, responsible for finding the first signs of water uh, in an exoplanet atmosphere way back in 2007. So, I mean, that's that's got to be a highlight. And uh, if if folks have listened to our other uh, exo, our mini exocast this month where we talked about water, we'd understand how important that is for our understanding of, of the distribution of life in the universe and planet formation and, 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 and really everything. Water is incredibly important. And Spitzer really helped us to understand its its distribution elsewhere. So yeah. RIP Spitzer. What about you, Hugh? What was your highlight? Well, I, I have a few, right? I mean, so you mentioned the Trappist system and I think those... So it observed Trappist for 20 days straight, which was one of the longest times it spent staring at a single star. Um, and at the point when it when when it was observing Trappist, we knew there was 
between one and three planets. We didn't really know what was going on with this system. Someone had seen a, a triple transit, so three transit, three planets transiting at once. But we didn't know the periods. We didn't know how many planets there actually were. And so Spitzer looked at it, you know, when we only knew two of these planets effectively and it found five more right so so that was a that was you know we wouldn't we wouldn't know trappist and and it wouldn't be this amazing system if it wasn't for those bits of observations yeah so that's certainly uh yeah i think that's probably my highlight okay so let's have the good news shall we (laughs) so uh we talked about it last month um chaos was launched it was it was successful in its launch um on the 17th of december although it was delayed 24 hours due to some sort of software problem but you know given james webb for example um 24 hour delay is not so bad um um, and so yeah so so commissioning is ongoing but just this week um the telescope cover was removed. So I think I mentioned it last time. I was kind of scared for this moment where they have to maneuver off this cover from the telescope yeah. in order to open the telescope to the to space. And they did that successfully this week. And so there will be first light in a few days' time, the first images coming back of stars from Kops. And hopefully, you know, this is quite well timed because Kops is I mean, it's it's not able to stare at the same kind of uh, patch of sky, the Spitzer, it's slightly more limited given its orbits around the Earth and a low Earth orbit, but it is going to try and rekindle what Spitzer was doing for exoplanets by taking a lot of transits, a lot of phase curves, and trying to fill in um, our understanding of exoplanets in the way that Spitzer, the gap that Spitzer has effectively left. Um, and um, staying on spacecraft, and I mentioned it there, we should talk a little bit about James Webb. Um, Hannah, you you were in, involved in a James Webb workshop just this last couple of weeks, right? So so you can maybe talk about the James Webb news more than me. Yeah, so uh, there's been a number of things happening in regards to, to Webb. Uh, one of the things that is probably more on the bad news slash good news slash we're not really sure side is a readiness report came out from the US Government of Accountability Office. Um these are people that are charged to go in and work out whether or not something that they're spending money on is coming to schedule and is actually being done the way that they said it would be done given the money that's gone into it. Really just people going in to audit it. Now, bad news. The project's been managing itself to a March 2021 launch date, but the estimates actually show that there's only a 12% likelihood that they will be able to achieve that date. So let's just say like right here and now, it is not launching in March 2021. That is incredibly unlikely. 12% is is pretty atrocious. However, there is a 70% chance that it will launch in July of 2021. So I think we should start taking bets on when it's actually going to launch. I'm pretty certain we said this when we recorded a podcast before the 2018 one. We've been running long enough now. (laughs) <laughs> that we've missed a couple of deadlines. <laughs> but um, I, I think we should take bets. What do you guys think? When do you think it will be launched? Well, I guess I'd like a little bit more information about what's happening in those three months to increase its likelihood of launch by like 60%. percent <laughs> we all? Uh, there is an incredibly detailed report that was produced uh, and I skimmed through it. The highlights aren't particularly highlightable. Uh, Unfortunately, I don't know if that's just because they're not very good at writing highlights or there aren't many highlights, but it's an incredibly long report. uh, And I'm not entirely certain what this, if there's any one specific thing that kind of 
tunes that knob to a higher percentage. Uh, it's really all about what kind of buffer they've put in place for everything to be tested and all of these different things that kind of come into play about when you can use the launch vehicles, when you can uh, do a load of other stuff as well. So there's a lot of kind of things that go into that accountability, which is really quite difficult to calculate. That's why there's an entire administration available to do so. <laughs> but that, that report is, is available. Um, so I can't help you there. I'm just well, going to need you know a wild I'll be, guess from you. I'll be optimistic and then I'll, I'll go with the July 2021. I think this will be the final deadline and, and it will launch in July 2021. I'm going on record. Nice. Okay, can I, can, I go, can I go pessimistic? Yeah. Um, I think it'll launch, launch before 2025. Wow. Say 2024. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that I'm is going November 2021. Okay. Okay. Well, I, uh, yeah. I'm I going to launch before 2022 is my... Okay. Okay. That's I saw a joke on Twitter that was, um, that was James Webb will be able to look into the early epochs of our universe, potentially even as far back as the initial proposal for James Webb. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's been a long time. Uh, but it will launch. And you know why? Because the call for Cycle 1 proposals has come out. And it is a Again. hard deadline this time. They will be taking your proposals at 8pm Eastern Time on May the 1st, 2020. You need to get all of your proposals ready and submitted then for Cycle 1. Now... Again. This is definitely going to be the cycle one call. Okay. If in the future they need to supplement it with a cycle 1.5 call, they might do. But right now you should be treating this as your only opportunity to get your observations in cycle one. They have 6,000 hours available for general observer programs. This comes in small, medium and large pots. So small is less than 25 hours and there's 3,500 hours available to be put towards that. The medium is 25 to 75 hours and there's 1,500 hours available for that. And the larges are over 75 hours and there's 1,000 hours available for those. So there's a lot of smalls that we want to put in, um, but 25 hours is difficult for transiting exoplanets. So for transiting exoplanet studies, we're talking about looking at maybe you can squeeze three transits of a close-in planet in that time period, but you would be lucky because there's a lot of overheads and these times include any of the other stuff that the telescope has to be doing during your observation. So it's not just pure science hours that we're talking about here. So I think it's going to be quite difficult, but we should be. There's so there's such a big pot of those small ones available for the tack to choose between. I think we really should be focusing on those quite, quite well. There is, of course, also calibration programs, long-term proposals, treasury programs, theory programs, uh, data science and software development and archival programs that can be done. Uh, and you can propose for those as well in addition to these general observer programs which are asking for time. These ones are mostly asking to look at the early release science data build tools, work on the data, look at a different scientific question than what perhaps they're focusing on. And of course, that guaranteed time observations that will be done in cycle one and cycle two. So there's a huge amount available um, and we really should be focusing on trying to get that information out of a telescope that will 
been launching? Sometime this decade. We can all agree Sometime on that. This decade, <laughs> dear God. <laughs> Let's hope. Oh, Let's hope I was being really, pessimistic. Really so we should move on to um, probably the biggest news that came out of AAS, which is the, the, the yearly um, American conference. This time was in Hawaii, and I don't know why I didn't go and get a free free holiday in Hawaii. But you got, I think, Hannah, you were there, were you? Yes, and I would like to put on the record for, you know, it's not a goddamn holiday. It was beautiful in Hawaii. It rained a lot, so I was very happy because I love the rain, especially when it's hot. But it was exhausting, and it was yeah. a lot of work. So not a holiday. Um, yeah, so we should talk about TOI 700, um, which was a three-planet, or is a three-planet system around a nearby M-dwarf in the Southern Hemisphere, which was observed by TESS and discovered um, these three interesting small planets around this nearby M-dwarf. Um, so there's actually 300 days of TESS observations of this system because it's very close to the Southern Pole where, where TESS can, can observe planets better. And so it observed 25, 14, and 8 transits, respectively, of these small planets um, with periods of 10, 16, and 37 days. Um, and their size is quite remarkable. So the inner planet is exactly one Earth radius. Uh, the middle planet is about 2.6, so a mini Neptune rather than a kind of terrestrial planet. And the outer planets, which is probably the most interesting, is 1.2 times that of Earth's radius. Um, so that means that the inner planet and the outer planet are very likely to be rocky bodies that's unlikely to be um, gas on the surface. And a rocky body, the outer planet, is also in the habitable zone of its star. So that's the zone where potentially water could exist on the surface if it was Earth-like um, in every single way. <laughs> in every single other way. <laughs> yes. Um, so in total, there were actually three papers released on this this month. So there was uh, the detection paper from Emily Gilbert's a uh, paper with Spitzer observations of that small habitable zone planet uh, by Joey D Rodriguez, and a further paper detailing how we might be able to study the atmosphere of TOI 700D uh, by Gabriel Suisa. Uh, but unfortunately, that last paper, despite the fact that it's in a very good part of the sky for James Webb to observe, if, if TOI 700D is Earth-like, those atmospheric features on its surface are unfortunately just kind of too small, probably, to be observed by James Webb with a total maximum amplitude of about 10 parts per million, whereas James Webb's noise for this system is about the same. Um, so, um, but it's a sign that Tess is finding these really interesting, you know, habitable planets around M-dwarfs, which James Webb could observe in the future. And even in Spitzer's last months, it was still uh, helping to confirm super exciting planets and doing great science. Indeed. Exactly. Yeah, swan song. So st sticking with Tess, there was a couple of cool uh, M-dwarf planets um, that weren't in the habitable zone. They were both very hot planets. So one was published um, by Nicola Estudio de Fru, um, which is TOI-134 or L1689b. And this is a, a uh, 1.4 Earth radius planet, uh, which is surprisingly massive at 4.6 Earth masses, with a, which suggests maybe it has a larger iron core than the Earth, so something like 50% larger than the Earth's core. Um, and the second one that I, I mentioned there was GJ1252b, or TOI-1078. So this was 1.2 Earth radius and with a 2.1 Earth mass measurement from HARPS. Uh, so that suggests more of an Earth-like composition than the previous one. Um, so moving on from transits and tests, 
uh, we should go to radial velocities. And there were quite a few interesting radial velocity papers out this month, um, including three that came out from the same project led by Carol Haswell at the Open University in the UK. Um, and this project is, is called the Dispersed Matter Planet Project. Um, and it was started after some astronomers found that the spectra of some planet-hosting stars had strange features, uh, around, especially around the calcium absorption lines. Um, in fact, the stars with the lowest activity in these lines were all exoplanet hosts, and all of the exoplanets were close in and possibly ablating. So that's kind of the dispersed matter bit of their project, is they're looking for um, planets that might have matter that's been blown off the surfaces of close-in uh, exoplanets that then change the properties of their stars. Um, so what they did was they reversed this idea and they, they yeah, so they went looking specifically at stars that had this stellar activity signal um, and looked at those stars in detail with radial velocities to try and see if they had planets. And actually they did, they, they were remarkably successful in that, in that aspect. So every star they searched thoroughly with about 60 RVs or more they found a close-in planet. And that includes a hot Jupiter around the 8th magnitude, HD 38677, a 2.6 Earth mass planet around the K-type, um, HD 4236, and a multi-planet system with four mini-Neptunes, HD 38677. And all of these planets are non-transiting, we think, although that could be updated in the future. But they're all extremely interesting, and they all must be being evaporated because that's how these planets were effectively found through that evaporation signature. I really wish that we'd be able to see those four mini Neptunes around that one star and try, if they were transiting, that would be an amazing system to understand because what they're looking at is the atmospheres of these planets being blown off and forming this halo around the star blocking out this calcium yeah. line. And the big question for mini Neptunes is what are their atmospheres made of? <coughs> and one of the really key things is trying to understand whether it's stellar-driven mass loss, so from the atmosphere, or if it's core-driven mass loss. And if you've got four of these mini-Neptunes in one system, if we could see whether there was like a transition in distance from the star that that was happening, that would be really vital information for us to pick out and understand this, this population of, of planets. It's a shame they're not transiting. There's a chance they could be, right? There is a chance they could be. That would be great. One of the most well-known RV planets in the sky is Proxima Centauri b, our closest neighbour, and a, a one-Earth-mass-ish rocky planet in the habitable zone of this M-dwarf. And uh, there's been continued interest in this star, of course, and much more RVs, radial velocities, have been taken of this star. And this, uh, this last month, we had a new paper um, which suggested there's another planet in that system. So Proxima C, as it may well be, although it's only a three sigma detection right now, so it's not a detection yet, it's still a candidate. Uh, it looks like it could be about a six Earth mass planet on a 5.2 year orbit. So this is extremely far out. Remember Proxima B is on about a 20 day orbit. So um, this is at the other end of the kind of scale here. Um, and um, that's, that means it's about four times larger than the inner planets. And because of its distance, it means that it likely will be confirmed by either Gaia astrometry next year, when, when Gaia releases its information of, of on the astrometry of all the stars in the sky, or maybe even with direct imaging, because it's more than one arc second from its star, which makes it extremely easy. Well, I say easy. Still, It's still extremely faint, small, small blob, but it's extremely far from its star, which makes it old. easier to find directly imaged uh, uh, signal from it. 
Yeah, it is. It's old and it's cold. It's so old and it's cold and it's. We'll see. Yeah, I maybe reflected light in the future. And another five M dwarfs with new planets were found by Feibu Feng um, this month. So they were looked through data from Uves, which is on the VLT, Hires, which is on Keck, and Harps, um, for a total of thirty-eight near M dwarfs, nearby M dwarfs. And of those, they found 16 planets, five of which are newly discovered, and eight of which are new candidate signals. And actually, one of these candidates is uh, is pretty interesting. It's GJ433C. So it's in a system where we already have an inner uh, rocky planet around this M dwarf. But uh, planet C is on a, on a remarkable 14-year period, about 4.3 AU from its star. So it's another one of these um, distant M dwarf planets, which we didn't really know existed, but maybe they do. Uh, which could be observable from direct imaging in the future. Um, we should also talk about two circumbinary planets which were discovered this month, actually in transit, so we're moving back to transits here. Um, and these are, circumbinary planet is a planet which orbits a binary star, so it orbits two stars, like Tatooine is, the, is probably the, the most well-known example of this. Um, so uh, one of these was found actually in Kepler data and became Kepler-1661b. So we're still finding Kepler planets, which is quite remarkable. Um, and this was a, a Neptune-sized um, planet, about 17 times the mass of Earth, on a 170-day orbit around this binary, which itself is in a 28-day orbit. And despite having four years of data in this long period, there was only three transits detected in Kepler, because often the transits um, of these binary systems don't actually happen every orbit because the binary stars have to be in the correct place to actually get a transit. Um, and actually, the interesting thing is that the planets around binary stars, because there's three masses there, they tend to uh, librate around, they tend to process. So actually what happens is is that the planets can turn on and off in terms of whether they're transiting or not um, on a period of a few years. And actually, this planet has stopped transiting, and it's predicted to not transit again for 30 years until it processes back in front of the two stars. Um, so we can't really tell anything more about this planet until it does. So uh, it's quite an interesting one, the ones that will be lost. Um, and the second circumbinary planet we should talk about is one that was found in TESS. This was TOI-1338b. It's actually the first circumbinary planet that TESS has found so far. And this was also on a long orbit, about 95 days. Um, in this case, it's a Saturn around uh, two K-type stars, which are orbit in a 14.6-day orbit. Um, and one one of the thing one of the reasons you might have heard about this star is that uh, a lot of the news was about how it was discovered by a NASA intern who was actually a high school student. And um, this might seem weird. It might seem like we use computer algorithms to find planets, and usually we do. But actually, these circumbinary planets are one case where we can't really do that because the binary stars themselves put eclipses into the light curve, and the transits also move around. They're not strictly periodic because it depends on where the binaries are in their orbit as to when the transit happens. Um, so actually, all of the circumbinary planets we know so far have been found by human eyes, by, by, by people looking through the light curves for these signals and then figuring out there's a planet there. Um, but I have to say, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't like shooting down high school students, but... <laughs> Planets detection is a team effort. Nobody singular finds planets these days. Um, you can identify a candidate and then that will go and be spend, people will spend a lot of time on following up, on modeling, on, on confirming that planet. A lot of varied people, you know, people will get 
Uh, you'd have stellar physicists looking at the spectral type of the star to figure out what, how big the stars are. Um, there's, there's normally a lot of people involved in every single detection. So a high school student was involved in this detection, and that's, that's really cool. But to say that he, he personally detected it, um, it's probably a little bit of a media bias in that, right? But, um, it provides like that, neat, that neat narrative. That. Yeah, exactly. The human story to it. Yes. Gives the, yeah, a nice, neat little package. It is, I, I mean, I myself, I love finding planetary signals in data. That's like something, and it's something that actually everyone can do, right? Because there are these sites like Planet Hunters or, um, you know, you can even just, just download the Kepler database yourself and go hunting for transits. Um, but publication is an extra step on top of that. And in fact, I, I wanted to note that this paper, even though there was a big press release, there's no paper that you can't actually find the paper. It's not an archive. It's not uh, accepted. That's unlike anywhere. you, Hugh. You love talking about speculation and things that aren't published. No, I, if it's on archive, I love reading the paper and judging. This isn't from even the an archive yet. Uh, yeah, right, that's that's Hugh's that's Hugh's boundary. <laughs> that's the boundary. Well, that, but it's had well, a massive press release. Anymore. So give them a bit. I'm sure they'll come out with a paper. Yes. No. I think it's probably been accept been submitted, and they want to post it on archive after acceptance. So. So um, finally, we should talk about a new direct imaging planets because you know there's not many of those. We should give those <laughs> airtime. Um, this is a uh, young star, of course, because young stars have young planets around them, and young planets grow glow brightly. So this is a 17 million year old star in the Scosen Young Star Cluster, and it's about 160 AU away from its star, which is, you know, uh, eight times further than Neptune. So this is extremely far out. Yeah, that's real far out. Yeah. Uh, with a mass of 14 plus or minus 3 Jupiter masses. So when we say planet, actually... Yeah, that's um, a brown dwarf. It's, it's much more likely to be a brown dwarf, right? Because the limit we usually give is about 14 Jupiter masses. Um, and given the distance from its star is another key thing. Especially because it's in a stellar cluster. If it's in a young stellar cluster, that could have easily formed out of its own... Exactly, yeah. ...gravitational instability... And we think that most, um, well, if if planets form like the Earth, then they should form close to their star because that's where the material is in a disk around its star. So finding such a far out planetary mass companion here, 160 AU, probably means that it didn't form in that method and it formed like a, like a star from a gas cloud, as Hannah says. God, I really hope we find some more directly imaged planets. <laughs> yes, me too. So we should move on from detection to characterization. And there were a couple of studies, again, from TESS, actually, which came out um, looking at atmospheres. So people think of TESS as a detection mission, but it can study atmospheres in some specific cases. And those specific cases are when you can observe a phase curve. So that's observing the light that comes from the planet itself as it orbits and the phase of the, of the sunlight on the planet changes over time. Um, so phase curves this month were observed for WASP-19 from Ian Wong and WASP- 100 from Tiffany Janssen. And these are both very different planets, actually. So in WASP-19, there was no phase offset seen at all, which means that the hottest point of the planet is directly under the star, as you would expect if there's um, not much movement on the surface of the planet. So we don't expect maybe an atmosphere on, on that planet if it's directly underneath the substellar point? Or? No, well, WASP-19 I mean, so has a substantial atmosphere. It yes. just has very poor heat recirculation. Ah, I see. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so so there's if there's if there's wind happening, it's not pulling the heat around the planet uh, very particularly fast or you know 
efficiently, as Hannah says. So WASP-100, on the other hand, has this extreme phase offset of something like 70 degrees, um, suggesting that heat is being transported very efficiently away from that day side to the night side, uh, probably by a strong jet, which is pulling the heat around one of the limbs and therefore moving the hotspot from directly under the sun to kind of one side of the planet. Um, so that was that's a pretty cool uh, comparative science there being done with tests and phase curves. Um, and we should, we should move on to WASP-121 because there were three papers that came out on the archive almost simultaneously this month uh, looking at the planet in high resolution during transit to tease out both the motion of the planet and the absorption of specific elements from the planet's atmosphere. Um, Hannah, you're our atmosphere guru, so maybe you could cover this. <laughs> uh, high resolution is a little bit different from what I normally do, but what these... Uh Two of these papers have been accepted uh, for publication and one of them is currently under review. Uh, and what they're doing is they're looking at HARPS data and uh, UVIS VLT observations to try and detect the absorption of species being ejected from the planet or things that are beyond the extent of the planet's Roche lobe, so the bound area of the atmosphere. Um, what they were able to, to find is that there is a strong detection of neutral iron so FE being absorbed during the transit. And they've actually also, in one of the studies, detected a blue shift of an iron line by about five kilometers per second. And this, like a phase curve observation, this can suggest that there are strong winds being blown around this planet very, very fast, transporting that heat around from the day side to the night side. So this shifting of these very fine, high-resolution lines is another way uh, apart from phase curves, that we can try and understand the wind structure of these planets. And MOS-121 has come up in the news continuously uh, on Exocast for since it's discovered, really. Um, and we know so much about this planet and we're learning even more. But one of the things that all of these papers uh, are very quick to point out is that this is a strange planet on its own. It's orbiting the pole of its star. And its orbital period is roughly 1.2 days. And the rotation period of its star underneath it is roughly 1.18 days. So it's a very fast rotating star, but this planet is orbiting around its star's pole, so it's not rotating in the direction that the star is rotating. It's going around the pole of the star at roughly the same rate that the star underneath it is rotating. So it's a strange system, and there's a lot of signals in there. Um, and it's it's also been found through a number of other studies that we've talked about to be slightly warped in terms of its shape because of the gravitational forces. So there's a huge amount that we have yet to learn about this planet and whether or not it's kind of a typical kind of planet that we, we would think of for these ultra-hot Jupiters or if this is one of the strange ones. We just happen to be able to get beautiful observations of its atmosphere. Uh, the final thing I thought we should talk about is Beta Pick. So Beta Pick was, um, was observed recently by... Uh, the VLT, and in fact it wasn't observed by one VLT, it was observed by all of them using this instrument called Gravity, which uses interferometry between the four telescopes to give an effective telescope size of 100 metres. And that means that even if the planet is very close to its star, which in this case it, it was, especially because recently it was uh, so close to its star that nobody could observe it, even if the planet is close to its star, this size of the telescope means you can resolve the planets and the star separately, and you have no starlight influencing the uh, the 
observations at all. So what the this gravity instrument could do was to sum up all of the light coming from the planet with these four telescopes and then use that to produce a high signal-to-noise spectrum of beta pic in the infrared between about 2 and 2.5 microns. And using the amazingly high-resolution spectra that we got for this planet, um, we were able to get a carbon-to-oxygen ratio uh, of the planet of about 4.4, um, i.e. slightly more oxygen-rich than the sun, which typically has a value of about 0.5. Um, and this is quite interesting because Beta Pic is a 12 Jupiter mass planet, uh, i.e. it's quite close to that boundary we were talking about earlier where things that maybe aren't planets and are brown dwarfs. Um, and as we were saying earlier, planets form, we think, from core accretion in the same way that our Earth formed. So it's from ground up, from small things that come together to accrete and gradually accrete gas, accrete um, planetesimals and become giant planets. Um, and then there's another scenario, which is a bit like how the sun formed, where it collapses from a gas cloud. Um, and we think that that's more common for brown dwarfs, but planets are formed from core attrition. But the C to O ratio is a really good proxy for knowing something or to be able to say how it formed. And it should be impossible to form planets richer in oxygen than the star if they were formed through this gravitational collapse technique. So um, this C to O measurement is actually one of the first direct pieces of evidence we have that these Jupiters, and, and in fact these super Jupiters that we see, um, were formed like the Earth from a kind of humble origin in the dusk disk, um, which is, I think, really cool. One thing with that, you're comparing that to the solar value, or is 0.5 the stellar value for beta pick? Uh, I can't remember. Because that changes the scenario completely, right? We can compare it to the solar value where we can make the assumption that this planet could form around our sun, where the solar value is 0.56. But if beta pick, the star itself, has a different C to O ratio, then we need to be comparing the formation of these planets individually to the C to O ratios of their stars themselves. So we can get an idea of what the gas that that star formed out was composed of. So if you've got something, like you said, through gravitational instability and it formed via collapsing of that gas, it should have the same C to O ratio as its star. I think we don't know the C to O of beta pick the star. Then I don't think well. that we can really make those kinds of conclusions. Thank you. I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't sure how much weight to put behind that. So that's good to know. It's a really difficult one because we... This is, this is, these are the big questions that we have. These are the biggest questions. How do stars and planets form? And the C to O ratio is one of the best ways of trying to understand the atmospheres of these planets and the stars themselves. But it's these very specific comparisons that need to be made between our solar system planets and these other planets that we're observing and their stars that it, it's a much more difficult question than it sounds when you write it down. Sure. I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for that launch of James Webb and in Andrew's optimistic July 2021 and seeing if we can actually measure this for many, many different systems. Um, but we still need to start by understanding the stars themselves. I always feel a bit naive speaking to the uh, instrumentationists or those involved in detection. That's how we feel when we ever mention anything about biology. Yeah. <laughs> Goes both ways, I guess. Um, I, I'm used to being, you know, that guy in the room full of astronomers who are like, hang on, wait, what? <laughs> uh, quickly Wikipediaing things on my phone. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was the exoplanet astronomer in a room full of 
ice giant experts. So people yes. who are experts on Neptune and Uranus. I saw and you were wow, at that meeting. Wow, did I learn a lot and yeah. also knew nothing at the same time. It, they don't know really much at all either. That's the problem. That's why we need a mission. But <laughs> it, I, I haven't felt that feeling at a conference for a long time. It was actually really nice. It, yeah. it was far more refreshing than a lot of the conferences that I've been to where I'm just sitting there and a bit bored. So I was, I was quite excited. Yeah, it's, it's not a bad thing to be pushed out of your comfort zone a, a little bit, um, you know, especially when there's exciting new science to, to learn about. Well, that concludes the news from the first month of 2020. But uh, yeah, sorry, it was, it was quite a bumper crop this month. <laughs> Always is. Thank you to everybody for listening. If you've made it through all three of our episodes, thank you for sticking with us through our new experimental format. We'll see if we can keep that going for you. You can tell us what you think on social media. Find us on Twitter at XO underscore cast or on our Facebook page. And you can send us comments through our website, exocast.org. So until next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Exocast. This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne, the Tess Chaops Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern. And Andrew Rushby, a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Exocast. I have exoplanets.